So I'm joined here today by Tatiana Mack, who joins us all the way from Portland, Oregon. Hello, thanks for coming. Hello, um, thank you for having me, Steve. I'm Tatiana Mack, I use she, they pronouns, and yes, I am in the heart of Portland, Oregon, which I think has been in the news more this past week than uh, we have in a long time. <laughs> it's, it's looking like a, um, an interesting time, let's call it that, but not interesting in good ways. Um, how, how are things on the ground in Portland for you? Yeah, um, I am not a protest regular. I have a few friends that have been fairly fastidious. It's now going on, gosh, day 55 or 56 yep. um, at some point. Uh, so they have seen a lot of stuff that isn't being covered by the media. I would say that the energy of the city is one that's much more like heightened anxiety, um, even going outside briefly, um, because of course this is a top of pandemic, uh, there is a very real fear of seeing a white SUV come drive by and just snatch you out of a crowd of people. Um, that's like a very, I think, visceral fear that a lot of us have here, um, particularly those of us who aren't white. It's a um, frightening development. I, I would have to say over the last, what's it been, five, six days now where you've had uh, federal forces in Portland um, unidentifying, like uh, not identifying themselves, not um, arresting people necessarily. People certainly don't appear to be being charged with anything. They're not in the process of committing any criminal activities. In fact, in a lot of cases, they are either in the process of exercising their First Amendment right to protest or mm -hmm. on their way home from protests in some cases that we've seen. Um, that, that must be a frightening development to see in your home city. It definitely is. And I think that I've been more closely aligned with protesting and with activism before this particular wave of Black Lives Matter. And I think that an unfortunate and fortunate side effect of that is I think your average person, your average white person is starting to understand a bit more how frightening the depths to which the federal government has upon our lives, right? That like kidnapping has been something that the government has done for so long. Like if we look at uh, what they did with uh, folks who were trying to uh, escape from Central America and what they are doing still at the border with children, mm -hmm. these tactics are one and the same. And I think now the reality is that now that white people are endangered of being snatched by the government, it's being taken a lot more seriously. Yeah. Um, and, and I have privilege within that as well, right? Like not being, being a, um, I'm a natural born citizen. I'm a first generation American. So mm -hmm. my parents were naturalized. And uh, even I have some level of fear about my, um, my citizenship being potentially revoked with a lot of the policy changes that we see the administration trying to enact. Yeah. The protests are the latest in a long history of um, activism against 
racism in America. Um, we, we talk about systemic racism and it's sometimes difficult for people to understand, but we, I think the, the example of police brutality, which is targeted disproportionately at people of color in America, um, black people specifically, absolutely is a, like quite a, um, now quite an obvious example of how the system is stacked against black people in particular and and people of color in in america yeah i think that when we talk about racism all too often we're talking about it at the individual biased level yes and that's the the biggest challenge we see is that people start to make it an individual matter that's why you start to get people saying ridiculous things like i have a black friend or um i voted for obama i would vote for obama for a third term like yeah. these are all these ridiculous things that our people are saying but really while bias is something we can never take away as far as I'm concerned. What we mm -hmm. can take away is systemic racism and mm -hmm. we can work to enact policies that don't discriminate against black folks in particular in our system. I'm, I'm currently um, getting through the new Jim Crow and reading that has been really, it's, it's 10 years old. So a lot of the mm. data isn't fresh, but the concept of systemic racism being rooted as an aspect of capitalism and an aspect of creating basically a free, like a modern slavery is really what the prison industrial complex is. I think when we start to understand systemic racism through that lens, it gives us a lot more actionable thing to, to do. Yes. When we're stuck in this point of, well, like people doing implicit bias trainings. I think those are bogus. Like yeah. we can't take the bias away. We have, we have bias and it's part of our instinct as animals to, to navigate the world. Mm -hmm. So instead we need to use our intention to, to build more equitable systems, particularly for those of us who work in tech. Yeah, we, it's easy to be and become quite defensive um, as a reaction when racism is pointed out. Um, I'm a middle-aged white male. Um, mm -hmm. So that, you know, the, the system is well and truly geared in my favour. Um, absolutely. It, it, it absolutely is. And it doesn't matter that that's not a judgment on how I think and how I feel, it doesn't stop the fact that the system itself is absolutely geared in my favor. And in being so, it's geared to disadvantage whole segments of the community. And those, those systems are, can be difficult to identify um, and they can be difficult to unwind um, and, and sort of redesign. But that's, that's absolutely the conversation that we need to be having. Yeah. I think that there is this aspect, again, um, another talk that I, I give is about our banal binary. And I think that the way in which we tend to think about everything binarily is really harmful. Yeah. That we think, I worked very hard, therefore I have no privilege. And that's a really dangerous line of thinking because it, yes. of course, can be both, right? You can both have worked very hard and have had systemic 
um, disadvantages and had systemic advantages. I very yes. much sit in that space. I mm -hmm. have the privilege of being able-bodied and of, I, I am non-binary, but I present in a way that doesn't feel antithetical to who I am. So that's a huge privilege. Mm -hmm. um, I am light skinned. I'm Asian American, which gives me all the, the privileges of being a model minority, which is a myth, but still I get yeah. advantages from that. Yeah. And so like the list goes on and on, despite me yeah. being a person of color and a femme of color as well. Mm -hmm. And I still work hard and I also still had a lot of challenges and I also still had a lot of luck. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm yes. lucky. I'm lucky to yes. be here. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think the more we can start to layer our thinking in that way and take ownership of our privilege and mm -hmm. use it as a thing we're responsible for rather than shameful for, I think then we yeah. can start to enact systemic policy changes and driving mm -hmm. uh, those changes forward. You uh, talk a lot um, via your Twitter feed and um, different uh, articles um, that I, I see you referencing around intersectionality. Um, mm -hmm. And this is this is a good example. The that combination of uh, advantage and disadvantage that you were just running through is a good example of how that can play out in an individual. Yeah. How does that like? How do you see that issue um, manifesting itself in the in the tech community and in the way in which we sort of design and conceive of technology in society? Yes, I think that we especially see that in using tech as a non-biased medium. Okay. We love to use it as an abstraction when really the people creating the technology, their understanding of how to categorize humans, that's one of mm -hmm. my favorite examples, right, is even the idea of name age, gender, like the things that we're commonly asking people on forms mm -hmm. reveals so much about what we do or don't understand about those intersections. Yeah. And all too often, because the people that are in those forms fit squarely into the ways you're asking for names, first name and last name. Okay, maybe that person then doesn't come from a culture where you have multiple last names, like matriarchal yes. and patriarchal last names. You don't come from a culture where you list your last name first, as is the case in many East Asian cultures. Like, yep. there's just all these aspects. And we love to say that tech is neutral and tech is apolitical, but everything that we create is born out of our own biases and yes. out of the systemic biases that we've cultivated as mm -hmm. an industry. Mm. I mean, it's um, one of the uh, critiques, I guess, of um, a, an, an art form like photography is that it's, it's not neutral. The photographer chooses what to, what to photograph and how to photograph it. Um, and, I, you know, technology falls into a, a broader and more significant bucket in which what, I, what problems I choose to address, what I choose mm -hmm. to see as problems worth solving, um, are also going to be impacted by where I sit in society and where I view my role in society. Um, you know, what is and who is worthy um, and why is that my choice um, are really interesting questions. 
Yeah. And I think about this a lot with um, edge cases. I, I've given a talk about edge cases where we love to use an amount or a sample size of people to justify something as being an edge case. Ah, there's not right. enough users. Okay. Well, if we take the example of um, designing for trans folks okay. and we say that like, oh, well, there's not that many trans folks, so we can just cast that aside. You've effectively said that one trans person, their existence and their identity and their access to your app or website or whatever mm -hmm. is somehow less than yours or mine. Mm -hmm. And I think when we break the sample size down to like one trans person, one cisgendered person, you're like, what if you have a sample size of two people using your app? Well, mm -hmm. what you're saying is you're valuing the cisgendered person more. Yes. And I think that that's like the, for me, the compelling reason to not consider things edge cases yes. and to reframe edge cases as actually really valuable places to understand the limitations of our technology mm -hmm. and stepping back the limitations that we've imposed upon our technology because of our limited understanding, because of yeah. our centered existences. Yeah. And at the same, like, Implicit in that is a judgment around what normal looks like. Yes. Because I've, I've you know, by, by choosing between those two um, in, in your example, I've effectively decided that I'm going to design for normal and I'm going to ignore abnormal. Um, yep. And there's, like, there's, a, there's an awful amount of judgment um, tied up in that. We try and find, so you know, I, I run a design practice um, and we try in our practice to take the approach of who, who is going to give us the best insight into this service um, that we're trying to deliver. And, and our work isn't necessarily um, in technology. Um, we work in things like, the design of bus shelters or the design of a train station or a rail service um, as, as some examples. Um, who is going to help us when we go out and speak to people? Who is going to help us best understand what that service needs to look like and can look like for whomever might be using it rather than, well, who's our normal user? Who's our normal customer? Um, right to get away from that kind of judgment. Yeah, and I think that in changing that practice, we start to see that we have two dimensions of normal. We have normal as like who the person is day to day, but then we also have like a normal um, environment, right? And yep. I think often a lot of, uh, I work a lot in accessibility and a lot of the ways in which I see things being accessible are that things were tested in very isolated, perfect conditions, right? Yeah. Like I'm, you know, I'm uh, when I used to travel, when that was the thing we used to do, I found that I was often the abnormal person, right? Trying to use an app on data in a country where Wi-Fi isn't common, like in right. Nigeria and Lagos, like you're paying for that data. So now I'm loading this site that has like these massive JavaScript bundles and I'm literally just trying to look at text, but yeah. they haven't appropriately 
created the site so that I can't see the text um, until yeah. everything else loads. And it's like, all right, so the, 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 the definition of normal takes so many, it takes multiple dimensions, I guess. Yeah. Um, we've uh, started to hear a, a little bit um, recently, and um, it, it's becoming more of a mainstream idea, this idea of anti-racism that it's not enough to not be racist. Um, right. That we, we should actually be adopting a stance, a stance of anti-racism. What, what does that look like for you in the technology sphere? What is it, I mean, um, we've, we've talked a little bit about uh, implicit bias. Um, we bake racism into things like algorithms. We see that a lot. Um, what, is it, what does it mean to be anti-racist in that context? I think that broadly how I see anti-racism and how I explain that to people is that racism is, is the system. Racism is the river that flows downstream. Mm -hmm. So if you just can, if you uh, swim towards it, right, and you're actively racist, you're going to get to racism faster. If you're just sitting in the river, the river will carry you to racism. Right. So what we have to do is we have to swim upstream against racism in mm -hmm. order to, to, to get away from it. And in technology, what I think that looks like is assessing at every step, who are we missing? Um, who are we hurting? Mm -hmm. And what uh, what systems am I helping to reinforce? Yep. I think that it's fascinating because in journalism, you're taught to like, when you're doing investigative journalism, you're taught to follow the money. And I think it's the same thing in technology. Okay. When people have these philosophical debates as to why Facebook or Google or um, any fang um, company are doing something, it's almost always profit driven. And so this idea I think working in technology, being an individual contributing software engineer, really asking questions and, and understanding the motivations behind the technology you're creating and who's profiting off of it and then who's getting exploited for those profits. Um, yep. I, I think that those are things that we're not asking enough and they rely on our detachment from it. Especially the larger the company is, um, yeah. the easier it is for us to kind of shut off our responsibility in that. But mm. even if we are making widgets, we're helping to make widgets that reinforce systems. And the systems yeah. that are reinforced and profit-making are racist, they're ableist, they're mm -hmm. sexist, they're um, xenophobic, they're um anti-immigrant they're anti-sex work they're all of those things yeah. um and so i think that that's our responsibility to question things and to come from a place of, of curious humility i think that often uh 
what we're seeing now, and I'm guilty of this too, is that we are fighting so much that we're just kind of in this permanently heated mindset. And I think it's far more valuable to ask questions and expect answers and to demand answers. Yeah, that's wonderful. Tatiana, thank you. That's all we have time for today, but I, I, I'm really looking forward to hearing more about these topics and, and having another opportunity to discuss some of these issues with you um, at UX Australia in August. Thank you yeah. very much. I hope um, that things in Portland settle down. Um, I, for the sake of, of you and your, your friends and, and the city as a whole, um, we're, we're hopeful that that, um, that changes quickly. Thank you. Yeah. And we will talk to you soon. Thank you. Take care.